we started getting news about this disease coming. And then I found myself alone in my house, not able to have my exhibition, but I literally flipped it and I said, well, I'm gonna take everything that I've been making and create a short film. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In our last episode, we heard from one of two recipients of this year's UNCSA Alumni Artpreneur Awards, Greg Mosgala. In this episode, we'll be spending time with the other awardee, Io Janine Jackson. After earning her BFA at UNCSA, Io started a dance career that most of her peers might envy. She danced with two of the world's most renowned contemporary companies, Bilti Jones' Arnie Zane Company and Ballet Preljokage, and then went on to join the company of Broadway's Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Yet, a fundamental artistic need of hers was not being met, so she decided to shift her career path. She enrolled in the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where she earned a master's in interdisciplinary arts. Last year, she won a fellowship from the New York State Foundation for the Arts and also served as an artist-in-residence with the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. Io remains a performing artist firmly rooted in her body, but the difference is that she has added several skills to her artistic repertoire, including filmmaking and, believe it or not, font design. Io spoke to me from her home in Brooklyn. I started the interview by asking her to describe a project she's currently working on. Certainly. There are several projects that I'm working on right now, but the one that I'll talk about is my film, Tear, Suture, Scab. The extended title is Within Every Tear, There's a Suture, Every Scar, a Scab. And for me, that means that, yes, healing can come about, but I will never forget So a scab will form and I will have those on my body. And what I realized growing up, getting in accidents, that my skin would leave melanated marks so they would become darker and they would stay there. So I would remember those incidents, like if I burned myself on the stove or something. So it really resonated with me, that title. It is a short artistic film, and it's inspired by these tapestries that are located in the Met Cloisters in New York City, which feature a unicorn who has a battle with these noblemen and hunters. And throughout the the series of tapestries, the unicorn is hunted down, killed, and brought to the castle. But in the last tapestry, we see the unicorn surprisingly resurrected, and sitting in this shortened, fenced-in area. So if the unicorn stood up, it would be able to get out. So I saw it as more of a protective, fenced-in area rather than a caged-in area. Uh, I paralleled these to the historical atrocities faced by Black Americans. The unicorn has gone through all of these trials and tribulations, and I wanted to parallel this myth to the experiences of Africans within the diaspora. 
Um, my primary focus is on African Americans and the experience of Black Americans. But one characteristic of the entire diaspora is this idea of resilience and how we have continued throughout history to not just survive, but to thrive. And it's always a miracle to me. And sometimes they um, associate this unicorn, this white, innocent unicorn to Jesus Christ and how he was resurrected and how the unicorn actually has everlasting life. So I thought, wow, what if I could just think about that instead of these stories ending kind of left in these like non-space death spaces, these negative spaces, I wanted to bring these stories, bring these people back. Is this your first film? Yes. So it actually started off, I was doing a, I was making objects at the time. So right at the beginning of 2020, I was going to have a, an exhibition in Connecticut. I was like on talks with my um, producers every day. And then we started getting news about this disease coming. And then I found myself alone in my house, not able to have my exhibition, but I literally flipped it. And I said, well, I'm going to take everything that I've been making and create a short film. I had no clue, not <laughs> a clue, but I had resilience and I had a lot of people who wanted to create something artistic during this time. So I was very lucky. Now, I was able to see the teaser trailer, which I'll include the link in the show notes of this episode. And it has what you've described is very, for lack of a better word, very heavy. The trailer looks like it's going to be very fantastical and humorous. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Am I right? That is very right. That You are very okay. right. I think that that is a trait of mine to use humor in a myriad of ways to express myself, one, but also to maybe deal with painful situations. I found that growing up that we would laugh, not at instances per se, but we would laugh about the situation of Black America. Not laughing because it was necessarily funny, but laughing because of the ridiculousness of the situation. And it's a way for us, it's a survival technique, I believe. For me, I'll, I'll speak for myself, for me at least, because sometimes you can't face directly head on painful experiences. You kind of have to remove yourself in a way. And as I see today online, on some threads like black twitter it is hilarious and they're taking <laughs> they're taking ideas of poverty flipping it making it humorous and saying well that's how we survived that's and that's resilience and so you're laughing you want to cry but you're laughing through it that's how i am and i i, I get really nostalgic sometimes because i listen to stories that my grandparents and parents have told, and I actually place myself in those times and in those memories. But I'm dealing with them in this body in 2022. And so the way I negotiate that space is through humor. It makes things kind of glide a little bit easier for me. Yeah, and it makes me think too that 
uh, I'm, I'm thinking of your artistic statement, which includes the phrase healing the fantastic black body. And of course, I think humor is crucial to any kind of healing, right? Yes. Yes. Can you talk about that? The um, healing the fantastic black body, how you arrived at that mission statement and, and what it means to you? Yes. I first read this book by Dr. Joy DeGry, and uh, she had this book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. She talked about healing the severed Black psyche and how none of these things that have happened historically are separate from where we are today, meaning that they ride and they are transmitted through our DNA. They're transmitted not just through stories, but that same when, um, like if a mother cow experiences fear, the baby will also experience that same jolt, that same sensation. So the fantastic black body, for me, it was a starting place, a place of honor. And this body, the metaphorical body that I'm speaking of is the totality of the shared experience. And at one time it had been, and sometimes still is, objectified and seen as an object and treated quite poorly. But I wanted to transform the way we looked at it. I wanted to say it's fantastical space that we're already coming from. That's the basis. There's no arguing about it. And it just needs a little bit of healing. It needs to relook at itself and see itself as a fantastical space or place. Most of your artistic career was spent in dance. At what point did you decide to get an advanced degree in interdisciplinary arts? What went into that decision? That's um, really funny. I think that I had just come to a spot, a place in my career and in my way of thinking about life that dance just wasn't serving anymore. I, I, I almost hate to say it because at one point- Serving you or your audience, your mission? Was- serving me as I became oh. more articulate in my mission. I had I felt like I had danced in companies. I felt like I'd been on Broadway and Spider-Man. And I just felt like I, one, wanted to be more, I wanted to have more ownership and authorship of my creations. I also found myself not being able to articulate the way that I was feeling about issues like race and gender and the intersectionality through simply through dance because the only tool I had was my body and I needed to pull myself out of that. In order to speak about it, I couldn't be in it anymore. I needed to be in a more poetic space. I didn't know how to say that at the time, but I knew that I wasn't something, I was becoming stagnant. And I spoke with a couple of people who were in the visual art field. One, my friend, my dear friend, Wangeshi Mutu, she said, you should go back to school. You should go back to school. There are these interdisciplinary art programs. You should apply to Pratt here in the city. And I don't know, oh, there was another friend who had gone to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And for some reason, I just really anchored in that, the idea of this school. And I remember, I remember applying and I would go around 
I was doing a dance performance at the time and I had it on my computer and I went around the whole backstage and I said to everybody, I'm going to go to school here. I'm going to school here. <laughs> and everybody said, oh, but Chicago, Chicago is so cold. And I said, I don't, I don't care. I'm, I'm going there. And funnily enough, I ended up going to a summer program. They had an interdisciplinary summer program that took place over three summers and it was perfect because it really reached out to people who were already artists in their field, thriving artists. We all came from different backgrounds, different disciplines, some sculptors, some painters. Uh, and I was one of two performance artists in the program. But I felt like I could come in there with the skills that, that I had and still be able to be a part of the conversation. And what was was there anything particular about your dance training that was really useful in this in in your education there? I would have to say discipline, discipline, understanding, and being able to take on a workload. I remember when I first got into and I went to UNCSA for high school, and I remember the first day my dad looked at me and he said, "Are you going to be able to handle this?" He's like, this is going to be a lot of work. There are a lot of classes. And I said, yeah, I got it. And I did. And that's the same kind of rigorous practice that I had at SAIC, but it was different. It was a lot, a lot of reading. And then we have, we would have to write maybe a page or two on this. So I got used to writing and understanding works and then we would have to read each other's papers and then respond back to those. So it was a very, uh, the transmission of, of thought was at a very high level. And I appreciate that. Was there anything you kind of had to unlearn from your dance training? Hmm. That's an interesting question. No, I feel like I brought myself to completely to the table. I, you know what? I feel like the, the shame of, of thinking that, oh, you know, I'm in this visual art program. Um, everyone else's discipline is better than mine. And I had to unlearn that sense of, of how I viewed myself as simply a dancer and the idea of dance. Because in reality, we are paid so very little. And so I associated that with my value. You mean in comparison to the base, the base artistic disciplines of your fellow students? Yeah. Like I didn't understand even how to, how to budget what it would take to buy materials. Because like I said, the only thing I had was my body as my tool. But now here I am budgeting and buying materials because now I have stepped outside of myself, my comfort zone, and I want to leave something on the surface that I can see, I can now critique. Because now if someone came in and was critiquing me, I have to take that home. Whereas I could create a silhouette of myself, leave it there, and then it would become not just my body and my lived experience that they're critiquing. That is a semblance of myself. That is a replica of me. I can leave that in the studio. And so that's kind of what I had to unlearn. And what I found was everybody, it felt like they really appreciated dance because they were always in their studios alone. 
not being able to interact like I had been in companies with other, with fellow dancers. And um, they honored that. Right. You have, you have experience dealing with a company, with a, a team of other artists that a lot of studio artists don't. Yes. And then I also changed my expectations on what I deserve and what I'm now bringing to the table and how to actually reevaluate myself and my dance training. And people really were, I don't want to say envious, but they definitely understood that what I was bringing to the table was highly valuable. Could you talk about the project toward which you plan to use some of your Artpreneur Award funds? Another project that I'm working on, Don't Be Ashy, Body Butter for the Soul. <laughs> That's a great title. How, how did you come up with the product and, uh, and its name? I started this project while I was in school researching Black female performers who were a little lesser known than people like Josephine Baker. Because as a Black performance artist, I wanted to know who paved the way before me. And... I found different artists like Aida Overton Walker, who were actually these these women who, quote, lived in the margins of history. And when we think about Black women, they were doing things that were unfathomable at the time to both Black men, women, and white women at the time to tour around the world, to tour around the country to perform in front of the Queen of England. They were just making magical major moves, but they weren't being talked about. That's what Don't Be Ashy is to me. It's to be resilient and resplendent no matter what. To show up and to shine in the face of misogyny, in the face of racism. Just like, I'm going to look good. And it comes from a... It's a euphemism in African-American language that's like, just don't be ashy. It's a, it's a way of talking about like, don't be ashy with your skin, not being ashy with your kind of with attitude. your attitude. Exactly. And so what made you, so you're literally, you're creating a business, it sounds like, right? Yeah, I've created a business. My business came out of wanting to, I took this idea of what these women represented for me. And I put it in this body butter because I uh, was making it for Christmas. I didn't have much money at the time because I was in school and I started making them for my family and I was making it with my friend in her kitchen. And she was like, you know, you could do this as a business, right? And I said, well, if I did, I call it don't be ashy because I felt like everything was just like, crunchy in my life at the time, everything would seem to be going wrong. And I was like, Io, just stay the course, just keep going and try to show up with a little, like a modicum of decency. Like, come on, you can do it. Show up like your great grandmother, show up like your mother, show up like your aunts, show up like the black women in your life that you know have gone through a lot more than what you're going through right now. And they always looked nice smelled nice and said sweet, nice things. Now I'm not always saying sweet, nice things, but <laughs> I do try to show up and look a certain way because like I said, you will always see the fantastical black body. I will always try to represent that because 
Black people are more than the stereotypes that have been presented over the course of history. Did you ever think you would go into business? Never. I never, I didn't even understand it. What I found, because I love making this so much, I actually make it in my house and all of the pictures for the different labels are based off of these pinup girls. And I, I never, yeah, I, I was, I was going to ask you about the graphics because given your background, I'm sure they weren't picked just haphazardly. <laughs> no, they were representative of black pinup girls circa like 1940s during World War II because they were used. Pinup girls were, I find, a source of healing. They were sent to men who were away at war as a sort of like, here's something to keep your hearts warm at night. Here's a little joy, a burst of joy in your life, a little forget-me-not. Remember that life is sweet. There's a pretty girl who you can, you know, imagine going home to. And so I wanted to have that represent Don't Be Ashy. And so it sounds like you're marketing it to both men and women. Then. Yes, I have a foot cream. I also have a hair and beard cream that, and I'm marketing it across all demographics, young, old. I find that, especially when I'm able to do markets, that old black women come up to me and we, they are dying laughing because they automatically understand what I'm talking about. Saying don't be ashy is proclaiming, hey, you get up from that stereotype of what people think we are. Come on, get up, dust yourself off, start looking pretty because that's, that is the fantastical black body that I'm talking about right now. You are fantastical. You are not that stereotype of being less than, of being poor, of being poverty stricken, of being someone who can't help themselves, of being someone who, anything that is a negative association with black people, like you are not those things and don't be ashy. If you'd like to learn more about IO and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Now, I want to make sure we cover artistic reinventions and experiments occurring in all corners of the country. So, if you know of an inspiring artist changemaker in your community that you think we should profile in an episode, or if you yourself are such a person, go ahead and let me know. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at PCTalenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre-Carl Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.